Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It was all perfectly legal. No campaign money. Greetings, my friends. Kellyanne Conway's husband has something to say about that. Greetings, my friends. Patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Wow. Uh, Donald Trump is such an extraordinarily pathological liar that, you know, we are, we are learning that he can look right into the camera as a reporter says, did you know that Michael Cohen paid 130 grand to Stormy Daniels? And say, no, I didn't know that. Well, why'd he do it? Well, you'll have to ask him. I mean, it's right there on videotape. And now Rudy Giuliani is running around going, well, it was a perfectly legal payment. It was out of Mr. Trump's own money. He paid $35,000 a month to Michael Cohen for a year and a half, a total of 400 and something, $460,000 for these kinds of things. In other words, there's at least three other Stormy Danielses out there if they're all being paid the same. But this is not going to shake Trump's base. It is provoking Mike Pence to behave a little interest, in an interesting fashion, and I'll get to that in just a second. But this is not gonna shake Trump's base. By the way, I just, I just noticed uh, greetings to our folks on uh, Facebook. We started uh, live streaming the show on Facebook a week or two ago. And uh, just now, uh, Radu from Glendale, Arizona here, uh, Joan from Boston here, Anita from L.A. here. It's great. Nice to see you all, uh, et cetera. So uh, thanks for watching us there and on YouTube and on Free Speech TV and listening on SiriusXM and all our stations all across the country, commercial and non-commercial. Anyhow, Donald Trump is, I mean, quite literally a professional liar. And I say a professional liar in that his lies have made him who he is. And as long as he keeps people like Corey Lewandowski around, who on uh, last week at his Michigan rally got up on the stage and flashed the white power OK sign to the crowd, to an all-white crowd, with the exception of the one black guy that follows Trump around with the blacks for Trump. Uh, as long as he keeps these shout-outs to white racists going, his 35% white racist base is not going to change their opinion. They don't care if he's sleeping with porn stars. Uh, Trump was absolutely right. He could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue, and as long as it wasn't a white person he shot, nobody would mind. This, this... Belief in white supremacy and this assertion of white privilege that is so intrinsic to the, and not just white, male white privilege. I mean, look at, look at the people that Trump has surrounded himself with. With the exception of billionaire Betsy DeVos and multi-multi-hundred millionaire Elaine Chow, Mitch McConnell's wife, he's basically surrounded himself with, with wealthy white men. And, and... You know, the, the white people of America who are concerned about the stuff that the, that the white racist right has been talking about and writing about, you know, Pat Buchanan, right, a, a decade ago, writing books about, you know, how, 
our culture, in quotes, is at risk as uh, the, as the uh, you know, this year or next, there will be one of the first years when in the United States, more babies of color are born than white babies. And Pat Buchanan saw this coming and got, got all upset about it, you know, a decade ago. And, and of course, I mean, you know, it's been more than just a decade that, that, uh, on the hard right. I mean, it was back in the 60s that, William, that, a, that a young lawyer by the name of William Rehnquist, uh, in fact, it was late 50s, early 60s, was standing outside polling places in parts of Phoenix, Arizona, that were largely Hispanic and Native American, this big, burly, six-foot-two lawyer challenging their right to vote loudly, intimidating them, scaring them out of line. This is before voter ID laws. The Republicans knew about voter suppression. That guy was so rewarded for his early work helping out the Republican Party in Arizona that, you know, he was the fair-haired boy of the, of the uh, Republicans. I mean, quite literally and ended up Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court where, you know, he gave the 2000 election to, you know, that Al Gore really won to George W. Bush. But back to Trump. My, my point is, as long as Trump keeps basically promoting his, his white privilege, white supremacist, male privilege presidency, He's going to continue to have the support of at least, at least a third of the white population of this country. You know, there's, there's that, that little twinge of, oh my God, you know, is it, is it going away? Is, 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 is my status as a white person in this society being threatened by the fact that for example, this television network is looking to hire more people of color. That means they won't be hiring me, not speaking for myself, but, you know, white people. Or that this employer, that my employer is now looking to expand diversity in the workplace. This is a repeat of the debates that were happening in the 80s and 90s around affirmative action in college campuses. And there was that lawsuit that went to the Supreme Court uh, out of Michigan State University, you know, where the guy was trying to get into the medical school and he sued saying he didn't get in because he was a white male, blah de blah de blah And it just ripped this country apart at the time. And Trump is not only willing to do that, he is doing that again. Say, so why are we so polarized? Because these guys have been playing the race card for 40 years. This is the Southern strategy that was first articulated by Richard Nixon. And was played out very enthusiastically by, by Ronald Reagan, his first speech in Philadelphia, Mississippi, set up by Paul Manafort. And in that speech, he, you know, where Schumer, Goodman, and uh, Schwimmer, Goodman, and, and Cheney were murdered, the civil rights workers, he get, Ronald Reagan gives a speech about, I believe in states' rights, which, of course, is code for states having the right to say, you know, no service if you're, if you're black here. Reagan knew what he was doing. George Herbert Walker Bush knew what he was doing when he hired Paul Manafort's firm to, to produce the Willie Horton ad that, you know, Lee Atwater was all excited about. These guys know what they're doing. And now you've got Mike Pence out there, you know, sucking up to the, to the Trump base. You know, back in October, he tweeted, I left today's Colts game because the president and I will not dignify any event that disrespects our soldiers, our flag, or our national anthem. This was because the black players, NFL players, were taking a knee for the national anthem. Those black people are being disrespectful, Pence says as he walks out. Right? White people all across America understood exactly what he was saying. Same thing at the Summit of the Americans when the Cuban representative was introduced. Trump, uh, Pence refuses to stand up. And then he goes to this America First event this week and shouts out to Joe or Opayo. And says, oh, yeah, this guy is a tireless champion of strong borders and the rule of law. No, Joe Arpaio is a convicted criminal who was pardoned by Trump. Why would he pardon him? Well, because Joe Arpaio was convicted of a crime that involved discriminating against people of color. And there was a, a Trump staffer who resigned in disgrace who appeared at this America First event with, with uh, Mike Pence. And the staffer said, and I quote, I believe wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly 
that the black race as a whole, not totally, is lazier than the white race, period. End of quote. This is the kind of message that Mike Pence endorsed this week. And that's why I'm telling you, you know, even if he gets into legal trouble, and it looks like he's going there, Kellyanne Conway's husband this morning tweeting out a piece of the election laws that says any person, including a relative or friend of the candidate, gives, if any person gives or loans the candidate money, quote, for the purpose of influencing any election for federal office, end quote, the funds are not considered personal funds of the candidate, even if they are given to the candidate directly. Instead, the gift or loan is considered a contribution from the donor to the campaign. So number one, if Trump is, is, if the purpose of paying off Stormy Daniels was to suppress a bad story in the election cycle, that's a campaign contribution, number one. And if it's coming via Michael Cohen, it's still a campaign contribution. Number two, this is the part that George Conway, Kellyanne's husband, underlined. Subject to the per-election limit. Now, that's 20, that was $2,400. Which means that if Michael Cohen put up more than $2,400 to pay off Stormy Daniels, he broke the law. And then back to, the, back to the law and reportable by the candidate. This is true even if the candidate uses the, fir- the funds for personal living expenses while campaigning. And David Korn tweets, wow, is the husband of Kellyanne Polls at Kellyanne Polls weighing in to suggest that Michael Cohen broke the law and perhaps Donald Trump was in on it? Yeah, that's exactly what's going on. And then you've got, you know, Donald Trump lying about his wealth to get, get on the Forbes 400. You know, he was, his net worth at the time, they found that he had an income of 100000 a year and his ad personal assets consisted of a million dollar fr- trust fund that his father Fred had left him and a few checking accounts with about four hundred grand in them and a 1977 Mercedes. But they put him on the Forbes list because he pushed so hard. He wasn't even a millionaire. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Or at least he wasn't even worth $5 million, but they put him on as $200 because he tried to say, hey, I'm worth a billion. Right. So this is uh, Jonathan Greenberg's story. He's now an investigative journalist, author, and uh, new media innovator is how he describes himself. But uh, And he wrote this piece for the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago on April 20th. And he just lays out the story. Back in 1984, he was the editor at Forbes that was putting together the Forbes 100 Wealthiest Americans list. And in the in '82 was when they rolled out the very first the very first list for the very first time, and Donald Trump found out that this list was being rolled out. And Greenberg says, and I quote, "Trump wasn't just poorer than he said he was. Over time, I have learned that he should not have been on the four uh, the first three Forbes 400 lists at all. Excuse me, it's not the richest 100; it's the richest 400 Americans." In our first ever list in 1982, we included him at $100 million. But Trump was actually worth roughly $5 million, a paltry sum by the standards of his super-moneyed peers, as a spate of government reports and books showed much later. The most revelatory document describing Trump's true net worth in the early 80s was a 1981 report from the New Jersey Casino Control Commission. Now, they didn't get to see this until until until, until after Trump had been on the 400 richest persons in America list for a couple of years when he shouldn't have been at all. And this is how, you know, Trump lies to accomplish what he wants. I mean, this, this is his basic method of doing business, and now he's applied it to politics. It's his basic method of doing politics, is to lie. And then when he gets caught on the lie, to come up with some other lie, to, ch- to change the subject, to move things along. So the New Jersey Casino Control Commission, you can't lie to them, although the documents are supposed to be confidential. But he listed his assets in 1980 as he had an income of $100,000 a year. He had a million-dollar trust fund from his daddy. He had a 1977 Mercedes 450 SL. And he had about 400 grand in cash. So his total net worth was a million-dollar trust fund, $400,000 in cash, a Mercedes, and an income of hundred grand a year. That's less than $2 million. And yet he claimed that he was worth 
hundred million dollars. Forbes listed him as being worth one hundred million dollars because they thought, come on, we know this guy's exaggerating. He's claiming two hundred million. It's probably half that. Little did they know it was only five million. Where'd they get this information? Where did Jonathan Greenberg get this information? He says, in May of 1984, an official from the Trump Organization called to tell me how rich Donald Trump was. The official was John Barron, a name we now know of as an alter ego of Trump himself. I was amazed that I didn't see through the ruse. Although Trump altered some cadences and affected a slightly stronger New York accent, it was clearly him. You know, Barron told me that Trump had taken possession of the business he ran with his father, Fred, which, by the way, was a lie. So why do people put up with Trump's lies? What's in it for them? Well, obviously, you've got, you know, the fossil fuel billionaires. They put up with his lies because they want to make more money. They want to be able to pollute the planet as much as they want, and Scott Pruitt is helping them. You've got the mining billionaires who put up with Trump because of, because of Ryan Zinke. He's, he's, uh, you know, he's already shrunk several national monuments, turned them over to frackers and gold miners and uranium miners. Uh, you know, so they've got you know, some skin in the game. But what about the average voter? The average voter is not concerned about their multi-billion dollar investment in oil refineries or in uranium mines. The average voter is concerned about what? Their economic future. And increasingly, what the Republicans have been doing is characterizing the rise of non-white power in this country as an explicit threat to the economic survival of white people in this country. They say it a million different ways in code. But that's the message of, oh, my God, we've got to have a wall. That's the message of, oh, my God, we've got to start deporting all these people of color. That's the message of no more immigrants from brown majority Muslim countries. That's the message of no more, you know, dialing back radically immigrants from Africa, period, or from Haiti, for that, for that matter. That's the message of virtually everything they're doing. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. And ever since Reagan adopted Nixon's welfare queen language, that's been the, that's been the message even with regard to their policies around poor people. National political reporter for the Washington Post, Robert Costa, just tweeted a, the, his kind of inside scoop from an aide in the White House, somebody who works in the White House. Uh, he says, White House aide is bewildered this morning by Giuliani, but says many on the staff, this is the White House staff, now feel like they're not in control of the situation. The aide says that the president and Giuliani are, quote, running, end quote, their own strategy and have generational rapport and shared grievances and perspectives. See, Trump can admit to Giuliani in private, personally, whatever, that, yeah, he had a bunch of, you know, that he had several affairs with women who were not his wife when he was married, when his wife was pregnant. He can admit that to Giuliani because Giuliani did the same thing. You recall Giuliani announced on television that he was divorcing, I think it was his second wife, and having an affair with, I think, who became his third wife. And she learned about it by watching television. Remember, his, this was one of his wives who was an actress who went on to, to do this Broadway thing, and she was preparing for the Broadway thing and all this. So, yeah, they're both rich. They're both old. They're both white. And, and they're both, playboys is the wrong word. I, you know, they're, they're both, I don't know, predators? Something like that. And so Trump can say to Giuliani, yeah, 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 no, you go out and sell it, right? And Giuliani's going out there and selling it. But like I said, most of Trump's base, a third of his white base are with him no matter what, as long as he keeps trashing people of color. Two-thirds of his white base are supporting him because they believe his campaign promises, that he was going to undo Reaganism, that he was going to, that he was going to raise wages for working people, that he was going to enhance the power of unions, not destroy them, that he was going to shut down international trade in a way, you know, where the American corporations could no longer uh, ship their jobs overseas and bring those jobs back home. Now, none of that is happening. In fact, the opposite. Trump is not protecting even white communities from the pollution from his big donors. Trump has not uh, taken on 
uh, international trade. He's got a lot of bluster and a lot of bloviation. He shut down the, uh, the TPP, which, by the way, Hillary Clinton was going to shut down. And, and you know, Trump is, like, taking these postures, but he's not actually doing anything of consequence. And he said no more stupid wars, and what's the first thing he does? He, he starts throwing missiles at Syria twice now without any military authorization from Congress. So you would think that his supporters who aren't in it just for white supremacy would be going, hey, wait a minute, this guy has been lying to us from day one. So, John, in Gloucester, Mass., how come you're, you're supporting Trump? Actually, Tom, I'm not supporting Trump, but oh, okay. I'm then calling to offer an explanation as to, uh, I think the way you had paraphrased it was, uh, the corporations uh, have skin in the game. What's in it for the average Trump voter? Right. I can tell you what's in it for them. Don't look so hard. It's just the bigotry. That, that is a motivating power. So do you think that my one-third of white supporters of Trump are in it for the bigotry should become two-thirds or three-quarters or four-fifths? I'm not suggesting that they become that. I'm telling you that that's what's true. I talk about this amongst my colleagues all the time, Tom. I'm a professional musician. I do a fair amount of traveling. I meet a fair amount of, 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 of disparate people. I meet a lot of kinds of people different, from different walks of life. Right. And I am telling you with certainty that the motivating factor, despite all the claptrap about economics and, uh, you know, uh, 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 kitchen table items, it's nonsense. It is motivated by racism and bigotry. And, and trust me when I tell you, that's enough. Yeah. It doesn't have to be more than that. Well, that got it's Woodrow Wilson one... elected. I mean, you know, it's, it's clearly yeah. it got Trump elected. Trump, it's, the, it's the one thing that you can look at that explains it all. So you think I'm being wildly generous to white Trump supporters when I say only a third of them are motivated by race? Um, you know, wildly, I, I was inclined wildly. to say two thirds of them, but but you know, I I haven't done any kind of survey. You've been out there in the streets talking to people. It seems well, it no sounds, sounds to you like it's you, you, like ninety percent. The, the worst thing that can that that we in society that you can be called is what a racist. No one wants that title, even if that's exactly what they are. Right. right? So, so as I meet people uh, when I go to state to state or country to country and, and, and engage with these people, you'll find – just scratch the surface a little bit. It's the only thing that expl- – the bigotry and the racism is what explains the rest of it that doesn't make sense. That's right. Yep, I agree. You know, and, and why the white Christian evangelicals who are preaching to white, you know, uh, congregations in their super churches right. or mega churches right. or whatever they call them. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I get it. John, you don't have to go any deeper than that. Racism yeah. and bigotry, the end. OK, John, I'm inclined to agree. Thank you very much for the call. Lou in Pueblo, Colorado. Hey, Lou, thanks for listening to Sirius XM. What's up? Hey, Tom. Uh, OK, uh, I was actually raised by a Nazi. My father was a, a, you know, he refused in World War II to fight in, in Europe. He agreed to fight in the Pacific because, you know, those aren't Germans. You know, I was, and I was thinking back, remember when we were kids, I don't know if you did this, we did the Nazi salute to the flag when we read the Pledge of Allegiance as a kid. This is, is very widespread in white America. You know, I've been talking with my sister and her friends, and my sister's a really nice person, and she doesn't hate, but she honestly believes that blacks are genetically inferior. And when I finally told her I wouldn't talk to that, she said, well, you know, but all Muslims are raised from birth to hate Americans. They've indoctrinated these people that are, are, you know, really nice, ordinary Americans into believing things. We can't can't fight that. There's nothing we can do unless we can get through to the media somehow and get a free press in this country. I agree with your previous caller that. You know, these people are racist under the surface. They don't. A lot of them don't even know they're racist. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. You're, I, I think you're absolutely right, Lou. And 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 it's amazing how effective racism works. I mean, uh, Nixon's Southern strategy got him elected and got him reelected. Uh, using Nixon's Southern strategy, got Reagan elected. Got George Herbert Walker Bush uh, beat George uh, beat uh, Michael Dukakis with the uh, Willie Horton ad. Uh, you know, it was race. It's been. Uh, you know, I'd say probably. Probably the only uh, campaign that didn't explicitly use race in their campaign materials was the George W. Bush campaign that I recall anyway. But, you know, they they used race to get him over the finish line by knocking 90,000 African-Americans off the voting rolls in Florida just weeks before the election. So, you know, his brother was was uh, making sure that 
while they, they weren't shouting out to white people, they were making sure that black people couldn't vote. Uh, Lou Well said, thanks a lot for the call. Anita in San Antonio. Hey, Anita, what's up? Hi, Tom. Yeah, I totally agree. It's racism, but I also believe it's misogyny. Yep. And it, as a woman, watching that campaign was so painful. I, you know, I love politics. I love presidential campaigns. But watching what Donald Trump was doing, it was very painful to me. Like during that debate when he brought those women uh, to humiliate Hillary Clinton, I cried about that for two days. Yeah. I mean, it was just in the, the, that video where he talks about grabbing women, and then all these people stood by him and voted for him. That was such a slap in the face to women. Yeah. And that's why there's been such a backlash. That's why that Women's March was so successful. Well, that's the other that's half of the, of the white male power thing that I didn't mention that I should have mentioned, which is, you know, I was talking about how this, this goes back to, you know, the 60s and 70s, the early rumblings of uh, law and order as code for, you know, keep down black people, et cetera. Um, but there was also the the backlash against the women's movement. The, the birth control pill was legalized in 1961. By 1963, it was widely right. available. Uh, by 1973, you had the Roe v. Wade decision. And so in that window of the mid-60s to the mid-70s, you had women for the first time being able to absolutely guarantee to themselves that they could go into the workplace for for their you know entire productive lifetime if they wanted and not have to worry right. about having children because now they had legal, safe, effective birth control. And if they did accidentally they get pregnant, control. they could get an abortion. And that was an enormous empowerment of women in this society. And that brought and this huge backlash, which was being spearheaded by Rush Limbaugh in 1987 mm -hmm. with his main shtick, which was feminazis. Remember that? Yes, I do. I remember that. But, you know, and, and they would use these subtle things like Mike Pence, when he, he would always say things like, oh, and uh, Donald Trump has broad shoulders to, you know, whatever, protect, right. whatever he was saying. But he would always say things like broad shoulders. That this Male that metaphors. Campaign, yes. I'm, I'm so upset about it. I'm so upset at the racism and the xenophobia and the, the misogyny and that so many people in this country, white people especially, could vote for that man. It makes me so angry. And that's why throughout the primary and throughout the uh, general election, I, I just hated the way he was normalized by pundits. Yep. This was not, you know, it was... He's continuing to be normalized, Anita. I mean, it's, I it's, 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 it's like nobody is, is shocked by the stuff. that it, it's, it's just astonishing. Anita, thank you for the call. It's always nice to hear from you. We'll be right back. It's coming up on, uh, well, it's a little past 45 minutes past the hour here on the Tom Hartman Program. Talk media for the sane among us. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's the place where despair is not an option. Back with your phone calls after this. Hey, I've got to tell you about the world's best chair. Most of us spend over 2,000 hours a year sitting in our office chairs, and if you have back problems or trouble concentrating throughout the day, there's a simple reason. You're sitting in the wrong chair. Take your chair, your style, and your productivity to the next level with an X chair. The X chair's unique anthropomorphic design and dynamic variable lumbar support cradle your body in a way you need to feel to believe. And a more comfortable posture means better concentration and much higher productivity. In fact, if you're a business owner, there's no better way to reward your top performers than giving them an X chair. And the X chair's sleek, modern style will upgrade the entire look of your office. Give yourself and your staff the gift that pays dividends five days a week, year-round. Feel and see the e X-Chair difference by going to xchairtom.com right now. That's the letter X, chair, Tom, T-H-O-M, dot com, or call 1-844-4X-Chair. If you're not truly thrilled by the look and feel after 30 days, refer return it for a full refund. Order today and save 100 bucks and get free shipping. If you go to xchairtom.com right now and enter the code TOM, T-H-O-M, you get a free footrest. That's xchairtom.com or call 1-844-X-CHAIR. We have one here. We love it. xchairtom.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, on the line with us is Dr. Alex McFarland. He is the Director of Christian Worldview and Apologetics, uh, Christian Worldview Center in North Greenville University, South Carolina, and a talk show host of the program Exploring the Word. Uh, Alex McFarland, welcome to the program. It's great to be back. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. Oh, and you, and you can be tweeted at Alex McFarland, M-C-F-A-R-L-A-N-D. Um, Alex, in this uh, uh, piece uh, that you wrote, Socialist Demanding Ouster of Razi on uh, Campus Undermine National Security, Tolerance and Self-Expression Are Hallmarks, 
Uh, you argue that uh, it's time for the Democratic Party and people on, the, on, the, on what you're describing as the left to embrace the center. Do I have that right? Uh, at least the center, yeah. I mean, you know, if we look at um, the speakers that have been squelched uh, or protested against at some of the universities, you know, the progressives uh, like all viewpoints unless it's uh, a non-progressive viewpoint. And whether it's national defense or conservative economics or responsible uh, foreign policy and immigration, um, a lot of young people really don't get to hear both sides of the story. They only hear the, the side from socialism, progressivism, the left. And um, this uh, call for the elimination of the ROTC is just one more example of how um, I would say it's un-American. It's unconstitutional, and it's more more globalism than than American interests being served in in uh, ameliorating what college students can or can't hear, can or can't be exposed to. Going after people who are going after ROTC seems to me like a classic. Fox News head fake. Uh, you take a small group of people who are making uh, what is probably on the national stage an unpopular position and turn it into some giant thing like this is the defining characteristic of progressives. It's not. Uh, it's a straw man. And, and I, I'm frankly embarrassed for you that that's your only argument. Uh, you know, I, what I don't get is, you, is actually what, what I'm hearing you say is, you know, uh, progressives should just shut up and go away and let, let the hard right have their way on campus. But, but your article talked about the center. And what I'm fascinated well, to get right. to I mean, is what no is the center. university in America where there is a hard right or even barely the voice of the right being heard. No, not at all. Listen, I know I've been attempted to have been shouted down at universities where I've been invited to give a lecture or do a Q&A. And we're not saying this is the only issue, and it's, it's certainly not a straw man, but it's just another example of how tolerant and self-expression, uh, you know, the progressives pride themselves in being tolerant, but they're not tolerant to voices with which they disagree, i.e., conservatism and Americanism. Well, to the extent that conservatism is bigotry, I share that intolerance. And I think intolerance of bigotry in the United States, which is the major animating um, dimension of the Republican Party and the conservative movement right now, is, is patriotic, frankly, Alex. But I would like to ask you about the center. Again, I, I go back to, you know, this, this uh, polling that was done in 2016, uh, the year before last. Uh, uh, this was an interview uh, done by public uh, policy polling and uh, commissioned by the Progressive Change uh, Institute, 79% of Americans want the government to negotiate drug prices. 78% uh, you know, support universal pre-kindergarten. 77% are in favor of changing our trade policy to protect workers and the environment. 74% um, want to end tax loopholes for corporations that ship jobs overseas. 73% want to end gerrymandering. This is all voters, right? Not Republicans, sure. Democrats. Um, these are all progressive positions that people like Stephanie Rule say, oh, those are Ber Bernie positions, and the American people will never go for the far left, for the Bernie left. 71% uh, of Americans want a, an infrastructure jobs program that's at least a half a trillion dollars. 71% of Americans want Medicare for all. 72% think Americans should be able to pay their, their mortgage with their 401k. 70% of Americans want to expand Social Security. 70% of American voters want a Green New Deal. I mean, I could go on. The list goes on. I don't understand where this so-called center is that you're saying that people on the so-called left should be embracing. What it seems to me is that the center is where the Republicans were 30 years ago and, and that it's just old Republican policies of, hey, let's let the corporations buy more politicians. Well, you know, there, there are a lot of statistics and a lot of polling results uh, brought to the table by different uh, ideological groups. And let me say, volumes of research uh, prove that the uh, removal of government intervention is the best thing for the free market and the best thing... There's no such thing consumers. as a free market, Alex. Markets are created by governments. Governments regulate the currency. They define the rules of the marketplace. They define what's fraud and what isn't. They, 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 man, they manage and run the jails in which people who break the rules of the market are put. There's literally no such thing as a free market. Even if you say the freest of free markets, I'll, you and I are sure. next door neighbors, I'll wash your car if you mow my lawn. That sounds like the freest market imaginable. But what happens when I accidentally or intentionally smash the window of your car while I'm washing it? Who do we go to to litigate that? Outside the free market, we go to government. government. There's no such thing the, as a free market. And your argument for deregulation is simply an argument for the banks and the refineries to be able to poison us and rip us off. You know, Finland just two weeks ago removed the guaranteed standard monthly wage for everybody. That has nothing to do with deregulation. 
Um, America was at her strongest and thrived and was at her best when the government's intervention in the market was minimal, not maximal. And I'm Are you talking about Andrew most, Jackson's administration when we had the greatest depression well, in the history of the United about, States? Uh, I'm talking about the post-World War II era where the government was minimally involved. And we don't want to become a socialist. Right, so the government came uh, in in the 1970s in response to Ralph Nader and Rachel Carlson and started regulating pesticides, regulating pollution, re and, and uh, you know, regulating seat belts and car helmets or, or motorcycle helmets. Conservatives were screening bloody murder. And what happened to the economy, Alex? Look, look it boomed. Since Trump was inaugurated, just look at the stock market and look at the economy. Consumer spending is up. Consumer confidence is up. People are saving money. More people are owning their own homes. Hey, you, know you give me four and a half trillion dollars to pour into the economy, I'll the show market. you good times too, Alex. This is a benefit. scam. The consumer. The only place where socialism is lauded in this. This is a scam, Alex. They they are borrowing and a trillion and a half dollars this October. They borrowed four hundred thirty-eight billion dollars in the first quarter of this year and, and in order to hand that money off to billionaires to who and, and big corporations budget. like Apple who are buying back a hundred billion dollars worth of their own stock to jack their stock prices. So you can say that how somehow it has and something to do with deregulation. It doesn't. Entitlements. We'll have to end welfare programs. We can't have a state goal and we'll have to that, that way we won't have to be uh living in the red will end government entitlements and the sooner the better so who who's uh whose welfare programs would jesus cut off in your world dr alex mcfarland uh well first of all in the work? world of jesus christ there never would have been socialism there never would have been a jesus was the original socialist system everybody uh, put into know, the common purse alex you know the, that the church, read matthew and work people, not the government. Jesus uh, did not create a church. Paul created a church. He said, uh, give a cup of cold water in my name. So they weren't looking to the Roman Empire to help the needy. It was the church. And I'm very thankful to know of hundreds of churches and to participate in them myself, where we have closed closets. We have so, so your answer to my question, Alex, is stop all the welfare programs and tell people to just go knock on the door of a church when they're hungry or when they need vaccinations for their kids or when they discover that they have cancer and they don't have health insurance. Is that your answer, really? Absolutely. I'm in Greensboro, North Carolina. If anybody needs a hot meal or a warm coat, call me. You can find me in Greensboro, and we will help you. But the government's job is... Do you want me to publish your telephone number? Sure. Um, the government's job... Yeah, it's 877-YES-GOD-1. Uh, the government's job is to deliver the mail... I've got a 704 number. For otherwise, you. stay out of our life. Seriously. Do you want your 704 That's, number published? All right, sure, because it doesn't work anymore. But the, the office number is so, seven so, so you didn't mean call me. You meant call call your uh, call your business. Well, and, and <laughs> we will help you. Obviously, I'm not going to give my wife's uh, cell phone number out. Uh, and, well, you uh, just said call me if you're sick, if you're hungry. You know, yeah, I, but, but you know, kind of qualify. Dial eight seven seven yes God one, or you can go to our website trueforanewgeneration.com. Well, Tom, look, the only place socialism has a welcome home is that in the classroom of liberal, secular university dinosaurs and on talk shows like yours. Right. In the real world where people actually have to make a living and pay the bills, it's not socialism. Socialism is absolutely right, Dr. Alex. You're, you're completely right. Dr. Alex McFarland, uh, he is the, uh, excuse me, the director of Christian Worldview and Apologetics of Christian Worldview Center. Hang on just a second. This is the Tom Hartman Program. His website is alexmcfarland.com, and you can tweet him at alexmcfarland. Thanks, Alex. We'll be back. And welcome back. Uh, let's see here. Steve in DeKalb, Illinois, or DeKalb, Illinois. Hey, Steve, let's try this again. What's up? Sorry about that, Tom. That's okay. What's on your mind? <laughs> um, yeah, I just wanted to mention that what this, the, 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 the thing that I've seen come out of this, um, aside from the environmental harm and, you know, all of the rollbacks of the things that have been enabled to protect our country, is the social part of this where I can't look at a, a number of my friends the same anymore. I mean, this has gotten to the point where <clears throat> I know they're intelligent. In some cases, they're making five times as much as I do. But the fact that they follow Trump 
put, in my mind, makes them seem like idiots. Or at and least I racists. I saw this before when, with the George W. Uh, situation. Only then, I guarantee you, everybody in your audience right now has either ex been this person or had a friend who was this person. As soon as, the, towards the end of George W.'s presidency, everybody left. They yeah. either claimed that they were independents, but they completely distanced themselves from him. Right, it's because he created he created the worst economic disaster since, uh, well, uh, since the, the the mini depression of of Reagan, but really since the Great Depression. Right, and those of us who saw through it were trying to tell our friends, "How can you support this? This is this is against your own best interest. This is ridiculous." And they would just you know keep going, keep going, and then towards the end, it was like, "Okay, this is you know obviously uh, we made a mistake." And they tucked tailed and ran. But with Trump, I'm seeing this again with the same people. In, in a lot of cases, they claim they were independents and they actually voted for Obama, which I doubt. But most of them actually claim that. Um, but now they're on the Trump train and they are convinced that the news is fake. Any news is fake. It's the whole Goebbels thing. It's, it's kind of scary, but... It's also, I'm, I'm a little sad that I, 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 I kind of lost some friends through this. I haven't officially told them you're not my friend anymore or unfriended them. I've tried to keep politics off of social media right now. But I, I can't look at these people the same anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it is, it is a challenge. And, and particularly those people who maybe are... And I don't know if I'm cutting people a pass when they don't deserve one, but I'm thinking of a few people that I knew back in the marina in Washington, D.C., who ended up supporting Trump and had earlier been Bernie supporters. And that they may well be unconscious of their own uh, subtle embrace of white supremacy. You know, as long as you're on the top, you feel comfortable. And uh, go ahead. Well, where I, 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 I understand what you're saying, but I don't consider myself to be a genius. I consider myself to be an extremely average person, and I don't have time to read 5,000 news feeds to try and, you know, put everything together, what's going on. So I just read what I can. I try to go with the trusted news sources. Yeah, and you're figuring but, it out, and these folks apparently can't. Steve, I got I to gotta, I gotta run, but thank you for the call. We'll be right back. It's uh, coming up on 20 minutes and a half past the hour. So uh, NBC News is reporting that federal investigators wiretapped uh, Michael Cohen, Trump's lawyer. And now, of course, Trump is, well, he just did the national prayer breakfast. <laughs> oh, man, this is so strange. This is so strange. Johnny in Lamarck, Texas. Hey, Johnny, what's up? Hey, Tom. Uh, your guest, Dr. McFarland. Right. I don't know if he's still available. Can he hear me or did he hang up? Uh, he's long gone, yeah. I mean, he might be listening to the anyway, show. I don't know. I couldn't believe that he wants me to embrace the middle. In other words, embrace the people on the far right is what he's getting at. Right. And I don't see why I should embrace him. I don't see why I should apologize to him. I have nothing to apologize for. As a matter of fact, in the summer of 1985, as I was telling your call screener, I was driving east on Gulf Bank Road in Houston. And uh, they had the, the main rock channel, rock station on. And these DJs made a, a disparaging reference to black people as part of a joke. And I have, hadn't heard that for years and years. I was in my mid-20s by then. And I thought, oh, my God, the right has gotten to a new low. Don't forget, 1985, we already had five years of Reagan. And now this. And from that day forward, we haven't changed. We haven't gone back. We've gone backwards. Yep. So they're the ones that need to come to us. They need to apologize to us. They need to embrace us because we are the majority, not them. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think that the progressive perspective is one that wins not only Democrats, it wins Republicans as well. Johnny Well said, thank you. Holly in Marshall, Missouri. Hey, Holly. Hi, Tom. How's your throat? It's getting better. It's just I've got this remnant in my lungs. This is the week four, which is mind-boggling. Anyhow, what's on, what's on your mind, Holly? Well, I did hear uh, one other thing about Trump supporters on the Bill Maher show. This uh, young woman, Anne-Marie Cox, said oh, yeah. that one of the major uh, reasons was that pe uh, uneducated, wealthy people, and this is what I see in my own town in rural Missouri, uh, were voted for Trump because they were afraid of losing 
something, and I think that has to do with taxes along with the white privilege. Yeah. So, yeah, so I just wanted to, and your a previous caller said a lot of things, so I won't repeat them. Well, and I think that the election of Trump in a very real way was a lot of white people in this country saying, okay, we had eight years of a really, really smart black president, and now we're going to prove to you that even the crummiest, stupidest, most misogynistic, most incompetent, most uninformed white guy is better in our in their minds in the minds of these you know right-wing white voters is better than a you know your smartest black guy around you know uh, in this case obama and and the proof of that is that the more trump reaches out to his base by undoing everything obama touched from the iran deal to obamacare to fill in the blanks you know to 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 emission standards and and fuel mileage standards the more they applaud him even though it's destroying the world in which they live well said. Thank you very much. Shelley in Pottstown, Pennsylvania. Hey, Shelley, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I just wanted to comment on the, the guest proposal that, that they had an entitlement programs and push them off into the church. Right. I don't think that he understands anything about economics, let alone, you know, just the way that I can't imagine how anybody could say that a church has the, the infrastructure or the resources to take care of people's Social Security payments their Medicare, their food stamps, their, their, um, you know, their help with electricity and utilities. Right. I, I We're talking, Shelley, just, just to put this in perspective and, and to, to amplify your point, and, and forgive the interruption, but I'll let you get right back to it, but is that last year, churches in America spent about $5 billion in direct, what you would call social welfare activities, uh, soup kitchens, medical clinics, housing for the poor, about $5 billion nationwide for the year. I don't have the number right off the top of my head of what we pay for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, and all the welfare programs, but I would be amazed if it's not at least $500 billion, not $5 billion. To think that the churches with a $5 billion you know, annual budget for social welfare programs, or even doubling that to $10 billion, could take on even a small percentage of what our federal government does and state governments is not just fantasy, it's stupidity. Back to you, Shelley. Oh, I wholeheartedly agree. And I just, you know, my concern is, too, um, you know, if you, just, if you just think about all this, there's just no way that a church can even do this. Let's say that you have, you know, ABC Methodist Church in Washington, D.C., and they have um, 100 members that receive $1,000 a month in Social Security. Do you think that the parishioners are going to cough up uh, that kind of money each month? It's just impossible. Right. Um, I also want to point something out that's somewhat interesting uh, there's a, I hear these commercials for a, a, a so-called Christian group called MediShare, and I think the idea behind this is that a bunch of Christians get together, contribute a monthly amount, and then they all pay off each other's medical bills, um, you know, right. as, as, a, as, an, as an alternative to it's like a risk insurance, pool. which, you know, may or may not be an interesting idea, but the idea is, you know, I see some people trying to do this. I'd be very curious to see how it all pans out for them. I'm guessing that they've got as many gotchas as the health insurance companies had before Obamacare. You know, oh, you've got a million-dollar insurance bill. Well, we only pay the first hundred thousand. Uh, you know, oh, you've got uh, you know a disease we don't approve of. You've got AIDS. We won't cover that. You know, those kinds of things. I I, I have no idea, frankly, but I you know I have heard about these. Um, they, they call them risk pools instead of insurance uh, programs, so that they don't get regulated by the insurance regulators. And the fact that they don't want to be regulated should tell you everything. Shelley, thank you for the call. Uh, and yes, I don't think that Dr. McFarland understands how uh, the social welfare programs in this country work, or frankly, why. But gee, as long as they're helping people who are undeserving, we need to cut. We need to cut them. We need to kill them. You know, who would Jesus cut off health care? Well, apparently in Dr. McFarland's world, somebody is not working. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you, broadcasting live all across the United States, uh, coast to coast on Sirius XM, all across the North American continent, on Pacifica stations, across America, on commercial radio stations. Europe and Africa and Pacific stations, on American Forces Radio, every U.S. military base in the world, on your electronic devices, on the Tom Hartman app, simulcast as television, on Free Speech TV, on both Dish Network, DirecTV, and cable systems nationwide. Pleased to have you with us. And super pleased to have Julie Kohler on the line with us. 
She is the vice, senior vice president of the Democracy Alliance, a progressive donor network, and uh, has a piece in the nation. And, and just so I don't pull a Sean Hannity here, I should disclose, I am on the board of directors of Vocal, V-O-Q-A-L.org. Vocal is a, an institutional member of the Democracy Alliance. I've been to numerous Democracy Alliance meetings as a donor. And uh, so just, you know, FYI. Uh, Julie's piece is Why 2018 Might Not Be the Year of the Woman uh, by uh, Julie Kohler and Felicia Wong in The Nation. And a uh, fascinating piece. Julie, welcome to the program. Thanks. Great to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you write, 25 years from now, what will be said about the current surge of progressive woman candidates? What will be said? Yeah, well, I think this is the critical question. I mean, we are, it is so exciting right now in terms of what we're seeing, the energy and activism that we've seen from women over the last 16 months. And now, as we head into the 2018 midterms, that energy is being electrolyzed. We have record numbers of women that are running for office at every level. But the problem is that the progressive community really lacks the kind of infrastructure and investment that's necessary to support the wave of talent that really has spontaneously emerged this cycle. And we lack that kind of investment that's needed to make it long-lasting. Yeah, it, it seems that it's not just within the party and within the institutions. Um, I, I, I remember, geez, six, seven years ago, sitting next to uh, the president or the vice president for programming of one of the major radio networks in the United States and saying, hey, you ought to pick up some progressive shows, you know, on your stations. And he's like, we'll never do that. We will simply never do that. And, and uh, meeting with another uh, CEO of another radio network that has uh, over a thousand radio stations in the country and suggesting uh, that he should pick up some progressive programming. And I was sitting with a U.S. senator when we had this conversation, and he said, oh, I'll never put anybody in the air who wants to raise my taxes. It, it, there is such a powerful conservative infrastructure. You've got a billionaire-owned television network that constantly promotes billionaire-friendly memes, uh, you know, Fox so-called news. You've got you know, three major uh, right-wing networks owning the vast majority of radio stations in this country. Uh, just, I mean, just looking at the media, I mean, maybe because I'm in the media, that's something that's in my face all the time. But then we've got the, 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 the challenges within our, you know, we don't have the think tanks. We don't, you know, Joe, Joe Coors did not set up uh, a left-wing heritage foundation back in the 70s. Uh, there, you know, how do, we, how do we build out an infrastructure when we're lacking transactional billionaires? I mean, basically, Billionaires who give money to right-wing causes, the Koch Network, for example, are richly repaid for that. They made, they, you know, for their hundreds of millions of dollars in donations in the last couple of years, they just made probably 20, 30, 40, 50, maybe $100 billion in tax cuts. And so a huge return on investment. Whereas, you know, when, when a, a progressive uh, billionaire or multimillionaire donates to a, to a progressive candidate, they're going to see their taxes go up. So all they get is a better country. <laughs> well, I think that's a pretty compelling reason for lots of people to invest, actually. A lot of people do want a better country. And the bottom line is that we can do this. There is an opportunity to really rethink how progressives are supporting and cultivating political talent. You know, there is, we spend $6.5 billion on federal elections. And if progressives really wanted to invest much more deeply and kind of take a play out of what conservatives have built, we're looking at about a $20 million annual price tag of additional, of additional investment. That's doable. I believe that that money is out there and that we can invest it in the right kind of supports that would not only support this amazing crop of women candidates this cycle, but really build a talented progressive bench for many years to come. Yeah. So what if you had that $20 million, what would you spend it on? Yeah. Well, I mean, I do think that we need to take some plays out of the conservative playbook, recognizing that it will look different for progressives and it should look different. But there are some compelling examples that we should consider. So, you know, I'm based in Washington, D.C., and right across the river in Arlington, Virginia, is an organization called the Leadership Institute. They have a $20-plus million budget, annual budget, and every, you know, they for decades they have been going around and looking on college campuses to recruit the best and the brightest, really, who are the emerging leaders for the conservative movement? They bring them to Washington, they provide them with training, and they help support them throughout their careers with fellowship and job placement advice, etc. So they're not only training candidates, which, is, which they do, and they do a great job, but also everything else that's needed, the campaign staff, kind of the other roles within the conservative movement. And we really need to be building out those types of capacities. We have a lot of programs now on the progressive side that provide training for candidates, and that's great, and many of them do an incredible job. But we also need to go deeper in what we provide folks and, and what kind of services we provide to candidates and other 
progressive political leaders, and we need to be thinking them as a pipeline of talent, not just for around one election cycle, but really for the long term. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. Uh, we're talking with Julie Kohler, the senior vice president of the Democracy Alliance, uh, about her piece in The Nation, thenation.com. Uh, and you can tweet her, by the way, at Julie Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R number one. Or at Julie the K. Kohler. Two, Julie K. Days. Kohler. You're yes. right. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks for correcting me. Um, so the, the the beginning of this, I mean, you know, let's let's start with with building campaigns and candidates. And that seems like, a, you know, a, a, a great place to start. Um, but there is this challenge inside the Democratic Party right now, which is the the water in which we all swim that I think we need to address the, this, this idea. Uh, you know, I see it almost every morning on MSNBC when Stephanie Rule comes on and starts talking about how, you know, if Democrats don't move to the center, if they don't become more like Joe Manchin, they're going to lose elections. You know, nobody wants a Bernie-type uh, Democrat or a, a progressive uh, Elizabeth Warren kind of Democrat. And that kind of self-talk is happening big time in parts of the Democratic Party. And yet when you survey what people want, and I, I, was, just, I was just talking about this in the last hour with Alex McFarland, over 70% of Americans, not just Democrats, but like, you know, over 70% of Americans want, uh, you know, free college tuition. They want national health care. They want universal pre-kindergarten. They want fair trade, not, you know, this stuff we've had since, since the Reagan era. They want to end the tax loopholes. They, 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 they want debt-free college. They want to expand Social Security. They want a Green New Deal. These are all over, these all poll at over 70%. If you get to things that poll over 50%, you get single-payer health care, breaking up the big banks, you know, uh, minimum guaranteed income, ensuring net neutrality at 61%. And, and these, by this, these numbers, by the way, are a year old. Um, it seems to me that the progressive position is the position where America is. How do we deal with folks who say none of those things are possible because the lobbyists are going to prevent it? And, you know, we really need to be in bed with the lobbyists. Yeah, well, I think we the way that we prove concept, um, proof of concept is by winning. And increasingly, people are winning campaigns different ways. They're not kind of shying away from big, bold, progressive ideas. They're running campaigns that lean into those, but in ways that I think are really interesting, oftentimes in ways that are very hyper-local, that are also extremely responsive, responsive to the community dynamics and the needs of particular communities. So that's the way I think that kind of that magic combination, leaning in and being true to these progressive ideals, but also customizing and localizing it in a way that it's really resonant for individual community members. And I think the more campaigns and the more candidates that show success of that model, then the political establishment and kind of traditional ways that we've been operating, that will change. But it's really Amen. the candidates that can lead and then everything else will follow. Amen. And we need to highlight those, those victories when they happen. Julie Kohler, Senior VP of Democracy Alliance, thenation.com is where her piece is published. Hang on just a second, Julie. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Twitter at Julie K. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R, number one, or at the nation. Julie, thank you. Thank you, Tom. Great talking to you. We'll be right back. Rick in Bellingham, Washington. Hey, Rick, what's on your mind? Hey, hey, Tom. Uh, first, first time caller. Uh, I've been uh, been a fan ever since I read Screwed many years ago. Proud blue collar union worker. So, Thank you, Rick. So, yeah, what's on your mind? And, uh, and my condolences regarding your father. I just uh, choked up when uh, you're relating your story. But but anyways, uh, yeah, I'm calling regarding Doctor Doctor McFarland that you had on there. I you know I had a similar argument with uh, with someone online uh, a while back regarding that uh, whole idea that you know and he, and he <laughs> made the arguments going going to the fact that oh well you know it's you know the the, the you know, he didn't look to the Roman Empire for for social welfare. It was the church, and you know, so I kind of dealt with that same that same kind of argument. And then it came down to uh, came down to the fact. Well, I said, well, nature abhors a vacuum, and uh, looking at the you know the material prosperity of the American church with but your average American evangelical church, which is more concerned with uh, with uh, facilities and uh, you know the basketball courts and minister salaries, it just kind of kind of runs contrary yeah. to what uh, the, the true spirit, spirit of Christ is Well, and, 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 you know, just for the record, Jesus didn't have a church. Yeah. Paul was the one who created the yeah. church long, you know, 100 years after Jesus died. 
and and you know Jesus was was uh, running a uh, basically a little communist community. They had thirteen people, and you know ultimately twelve, and and they shared a common purse, and every penny that came in was shared among all of them, and and they went around healing people yeah. and and uh, feeding people. I mean, this is you know pretty straightforward stuff. Uh, Rick, I yeah, need to move along. Yeah. Thank you for the call. Oh, Thanks yeah, for. Yeah, we just talked. Go I ahead. Just wanted to say that. Uh, yeah, just countering like this whole apologetic for capitalism on many, uh, you know, on many Christian apologetic programs. And yeah. Just thinking that capitalism, by its very nature, is kind of socio-Darwinian, you know, about survival of the fittest, and it kind of runs contrary. So there's just kind of this, uh, kind of this whole cross cross message going on. But, and it's uh, not even survival of the fittest because capitalism, and and most people don't understand the distinction between capitalism and free enterprise. Capitalism requires that you be ahead of the starting line to start out. You have to have capital to be a capitalist. Capitalists are people who live off their investments. They invest capital, and then the return on that capital is the source of their income. That's the definition of a capitalist. It's not somebody who starts a small business. It's not somebody who works for a living, uh, you know, who may have some, some uh, retirement funds in a 401k. A capitalist is a person who uses capital. And so by definition, in order to be a successful capitalist, you have to start out with capital, whether it's inherited or earned, which puts you ahead, you know, at the, at the front of the line. So it's inherently unfair right from the get-go. Rick, thanks for the call, and thanks for uh, stimulating the conversation there. It's a good one. My apologies to all the other folks on hold. We will get to your calls and, and considerations tomorrow. Uh, today's Thursday, right, Sean? So tomorrow's Anything Goes Friday. Hey, how about that? So whatever you'd like to talk about, we will pick it up. In the meantime, don't forget democracy doesn't work without all of us, right? We the people, the first three words of the Constitution and the Declaration, we the people are the ones who are supposed to make this country work, not they the billionaires. So get out there, get active, tag your it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.